0: The CNBC app. Global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected. Stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
1: A very warm welcome to Scorebox. Karen Cho, Jeff Cutmore back from Zurich and myself, Steve Sedgwick and these are your headlines. First Republic Bank pursuing all strategic options after more than $100 billion worth of deposits are pulled in the last quarter, sparking renewed concerns on Wall Street with all three major indices suffering their deepest declines this month. Rising rates and higher trading income, though, boosting Standard Chartered, with first quarter pre-tax profit jumping 21% and topping forecasts. We're going to speak to the CFO, Andy Halford, in just a moment.
2: Meanwhile, Alphabet announces a $70 billion buyback pushing shares higher in extended trade after the company beats earnings forecasts and doubles down on its AI ambitions.
3: We'll be guided by data and years of experience about what people want and our high standards for quality. And we'll test and iterate as we go because we know that billions of people trust Google to provide the right information.
2: Microsoft shares surge in extended trade after reporting a beat on estimates and bullish guidance fueled by strength in its cloud business.
0: U.S. President Joe Biden announces his 2024 re-election bid, setting the stage for a potential rematch with Donald Trump.
1: awful lot going on in these markets at the moment. And I'll just tell you before we get into the, the, the story behind me, banking crisis, that it is not just one sector that you are focusing on at the moment. We're going to spend a lot of time talking to Andy Halford in a few moments time about the banking sector, what's good and what's bad and what the macro challenges are. But it's also about what's going on on a global basis. Keep an eye on copper. Keep an eye on iron ore and oil as well, because commodities are lessening. Why are they lessening? It's nothing to do with the banking crisis. It is concern about the macro environment is concerned about the China recovery. And yet, at the same time, the third sector you should be looking at, the technology stocks, the names after hours really reassured. As we said in the headlines, Alphabet and Microsoft unambiguously outperformed expectations as well. So you've got concern in material sector dragging down, concern in the banking sector on both sides of the Atlantic. And yet, yeah, I know uh, Andy Halford's going to be talking about the stalwart parts of the market as well in a few moments time. Uh, but you've also got strength in technology just this time round as well. Plus, we had very mixed data, which is confusing you on the policy front yesterday. We saw weak conference board data, and yet we saw strong new home sales data. Again, confusing those of you who are trying to look to signals about rate rises or to come or indeed pivots to come as well but let's focus here on the banking sector because shares in first republic hit a record low take a look at this hitting a record low down 49 percent i mean have you ever seen well not certainly in the last decade banks falling like that so precipitously uh, plunging almost 50 percent after revealing in its earnings report that deposits shrank by 40 percent in the first quarter Isn't that extraordinary? This is a bank that's had support from elsewhere in the industry and yet deposits still fell by 40% in the first quarter. Now the move has prompted a renewed wave of speculation over the future of the lender with CNBC's David Faber reporting that the White House, the Fed and the Treasury are considering plans to stabilize the firm. One potential path would be for a larger bank to buy some of First Republic's assets. And I'll just stop there. If that was part of the path, why hasn't it happened already? Where have the vultures been to turn the circle and say, oh, we'll take those. We'll take the deposits. We like the the look of the bank despite its short-term problems. It hasn't happened yet, has it? But anyway, that would be one plan. And then it would allow it to raise additional equity, of course. Now, according to Weber's sources, who added that the next few days will be crucial. I think we all know the next few days are crucial. Uh, The Financial Times, though, is reporting the lender is struggling to come up with a viable solution. Really? I mean, that's obvious to all of us, isn't it? adding that one option would be for the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation to take over the bank. Now, a divestment of up to uh, $100 billion of assets is also being considered according to multiple reports. But will that be a fire sale or will it actually be able to done as the bank is in its current incarnation? I I I have my questions. Anyway, uh, Reuters is adding to the, uh, the mix with uh, reports that there could be a creation of a bad bank, which is also being examined. Let's have a look at the regional banks and how they performed on this. Uh, PacWest, Bancorp, down 8.9%. That was the worst of these major four you can see on the screen here, though. Uh, Charles Schwab, which is something more than a regional bank, I would suggest, was down 3.9%. Big banks, KBW, 500. Let's have a look at everything. Right, the big banks look like this as well. So down across the board. Uh, and there you can see the KBW. And that's not actually an accurate price, is it? But the uh, S&P 500 banks was down 2.6%. Materials, by the way, was a sector under a lot of pressure. That's the point I'm talking to you about as well. US markets, will go broader on this one as well. Um, just to say as well, materials was leading the S&P 500 low and not just the financials. And that was, as I say, that was about commodities. That was about China. That was about what is going on there. And actually, the dollar, funnily enough, as you'd expect with the commodities coming off, was up 0.5 of 1%. I'll just say to you, the 10-year yield was trading at 3.8%.
0: First quarter, pre-tax profit at Standard Chartered rose by 21% to $1.8 billion. That topped expectations. The UK and Hong Kong listed lender was boosted by higher rates and a rise in trading income. We're really pleased to have Andy Halford with us around the desk, the CFO of Standard Chartered. Andy, nice to see you uh, in the flesh in the studio uh, for a change here. So, so what do you think these numbers tell us about the bank currently?
3: Well, thank you. Good, good morning. And I, I think it tells you that the recovery path the bank has been on over the last several years is now really coming through. We had a double-digit growth in our top line last year. We've started this year with a double-digit growth. And actually, this is the highest income and profit print we've had since going back to 2014-2015. Um, So notwithstanding other things that have been going on in the sector, the parts of the world we operate in, the demand from clients is very, very strong. Interest rates increasing have clearly helped and we've printed the highest return on equity that we've printed for a long period of time. So I actually think despite some of the challenges elsewhere, the message really is that uh, Standard Chartered is absolutely back up and running and um, really moving forwards. What do you think loan demand is like in the
0: markets that you operate in? I've just yep. come back from Zurich mm-hmm. and I was looking at the UBS numbers there yesterday with the CEO and what was clear was that there was stability but there didn't seem to be significant growth. I wonder yep. if the they obviously operate in some different markets to you but I wonder what the picture is like for you in terms of loan demand.
3: So I, I think t- two things first of all um, deposit levels not your question but deposit levels which is where there's been a lot of focus have been absolutely stable throughout this period for us so you know that has been really really good in a period obviously of a lot of turbulence Um, and secondly on the loan side of things we have seen demand gently increasing now, bear in mind, we are operating much more in Asian markets than in the European markets that you're referring to, but particularly over the last few weeks, as we have seen the China reopening activity levels in China, and particularly Chinese clients that we have got operating in other parts of Asia, we have seen a huge growth in that area. Hong Kong is starting to reopen now, and we're seeing more momentum there. So I do think the Asian markets and the European markets need to be looked at slightly separately.
2: Just to hone in on deposits, when you say stable, do you mean that uh, some deposits left the bank but you also picked up some deposits? Did you have to pay up to try and stabilise the level? Just give us a bit more colour around the environment, around deposits.
3: So in, in aggregate, our, our deposits have literally been stable. So by, they haven't moved. They have just hardly not moved. Right. Now, under the surface, obviously, there is movement because different customers, et cetera. So we have seen slight reduction in some areas, slight increases in other areas. But overall, it really has been incredibly steady. And I think that is part of the benefit of being very, very broadly geographically based. You know, we've got deposits across 59 countries. We have got no one country that is very significant in that and actually the sort of ebbs and flows we've seen with the client side have been steady, steady, steady.
2: As we talk more about the washout from banking turmoil, what do you think the impact is on net interest margins? Because there is a view that some banks, some lenders will have to pay more now to attract their business to pay up to keep deposits. Also question marks as to whether we're at the end point for a lot of the central banks on the, the terminal rate for interest rates and whether this is really now the best of it when it comes to those net interest margins. How would you assess uh, the situation now on the back of banking turmoil and what it means for those banking margins?
3: So I think there are two things sort of mixed up in that. One is where um, governments will want to go with interest rates to get the right balance between economies sort of controlling inflation. And the other is the specific of whether we're going to have to, as banks pay up, to get customers to put deposits with us. I mean, I think on the latter, what we are tending to see is actually a flight to safety. People not so much saying, gosh, you've got to pay us more money for us to come to you, but people looking around and saying, where is an institution that has been around for many, many years, is trustworthy, is reliable, I will put uh, my money on deposit with those. So whilst there may be a little bit more pressure on, on uh, on the rates we pay, I think that is the bigger theme that we're seeing. On the first point, the question, which is the fine balance that many governments are struggling with, is just, you know, is inflation getting tamed? What does one want to do with the rates? Um, And obviously the markets are forecasting the rates coming down next year. Whether they'll come down quite as much as the markets forecasting at the moment, I think is debatable.
1: Andy, um, I'm going to pick you up on your let's split the Western markets from China. I think China is a much worse problem potentially as well. I think the local government debt problem is enormous. I think you've got an economy which is supposed to be opening up, and yet they were cutting triple Rs as as late as as March or February, I think it was as well. So if things are so great in China, why is the PBOC so incredibly dovish?
3: So I'm talking about the West and the East yeah. Generally, and not specific to one country. China's but got to be the China, the, the, the is, the is, a big, China is a very big part of it, but we are seeing, particularly with our business. And remember, our business is very much about import export. Yeah, we yeah, are not a course. domestic bank in China. We are much more a facilitator of import export activity, and that has been very strong. And in fact, over the last year or so, when the overall GDP growth in China was low, we were still printing double-digit growth in the activity we've got there. We've got the Chinese government very, very keen to make the remember. Bigger part of the global currency pool. That is exactly what we specialise in. The intra-Asia sort of uh, trade activity. We are in almost every Asia country. So even if there's a bit of a shift from China to other places, we are on both ends usually
1: of that trade. But I mean, I'm I'm just looking. Well, let's look holistically then, rather than just at domestic China. Things aren't. Why is the oil price? at 80 bucks why is the copper price trading you know at multi-month lows why is iron ore coming off as well if things were looking great on you talk about the import and export in china i don't understand what the what these key markers are not showing greater resilience
3: well, I think I think individual commodities have got individual sort of demand supply factors that are coming well, with I'm them. About
1: and big three for the Chinese economy: like copper, iron, and oil.
3: Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I just say look, look at the numbers we are printing. You know, yeah. over the last three or four years, we have consistently had good growth in China. Fair so even though China itself may have some ups and downs, the activity that we have got there is genuinely evidentially is picking up a bit by bit as yeah, we yeah, go through. Okay. Tell us about the property exposure then, because obviously
0: you you had to provision, I think, in 2022, quite a significant chunk, and a lot of that was around China property debt. Where are you on that story? Have you run down your exposure? And um, how are you working with the government or regional authorities to make sure that it doesn't blow up?
3: Yeah. So just just context, not lots of numbers, but our total loans and advances, $300 billion dollars. The proportion of that that is China commercial real estate, three. So firstly, it's 1% of our total. Of that three, we'd reserved at the end of last year about a third. We have not taken any further significant top-up charges. So at the end of December, end of March, we have seen the situation broadly stabilised. So we are comfortable with that and actually one of the features of our results this quarter is how low our credit impairment charges were. So on a $300 billion loan book, our total credit impairment charges were only 26 million. That is one of the lowest we have had for a very long time. So the quality of the underlying book is really strong. And where we have had some exposures, sovereigns has been one, China commercial real estate the other. We are very happy that those are settled. Um, that's not to say that they can't move a bit more, but we think they are marked in roughly the right place.
2: It's a very strange environment when we've had such rapid interest rate increases, but NPLs and banks are barely budging. We saw that yesterday through Santander as well. At what point do we start to see NPL's turn? Is it just a lag because monetary policy is taking a while to connect with what would have been stressed out businesses and consumers?
3: So, to my mind, there are two things going on here. One is, yes, interest rates have risen from a very low point, but they've more risen to a more normalised level. It is not like we've got interest rates gone up to 9 or 10%, in which case there would be a lot more stress with clients. The second one, I think a lot of clients have learned through COVID to manage liquidity much more effectively. And actually, we are seeing businesses now, even though rates have gone higher, actually managing to work their way through this, I think more professionally and more effectively than maybe would have been the case three or four years ago.
1: Andy, I know you've got a hard out in a couple of seconds time as well. Um, Anything going on in the United States that's worrying you about kind of the, the ripple effects?
3: So broadly not. Our business is not US-based. We have gone through the last several weeks with a different bank having problems with everything remaining very, very steady. Obviously we monitor it, but broadly not.
0: We've got to let you go, apparently. Um, But it was lovely having you in. Um, Andy Holford. We're not normally this well uh, behaved, are we? Well, you know how this works. We won't see him next time round if we don't play nice this time. We said 15 and you guys
1: went to 19. Uh, Andy Holford,
0: the CFO of Standard Chartered. Really nice to have you in uh, in the studio with us uh, in the flesh, as I say. Uh, We should just talk about Roche very briefly here. Um, We were discussing with Andy, obviously, uh, the adjustments in uh, China's growth outlook as a result of that country moving away from the COVID lockdown. Uh, Roche also has a connection to the story, of course, because the Diagnostics Division sells testing kits, but they're not selling as many as they used to. And even China is changing the rules around the amount of testing that needs to be done by visitors. The Swiss pharma giant then reporting a 7% decline in first quarter sales, falling demand for those COVID therapies and testing kits, a big factor in the Diagnostics Division revenue coming in at 15.3 billion Swiss francs which was above expectations but as you drill down into that diagnostics division where they produce the kits a 28 percent fall in divisional sales largely because of that adjustment in the first quarter here. The outlook though for 2023 has been confirmed so that's something for the shareholders to hang on to this morning pharmaceutical division sales up nine percent the company says they've seen strong demand for newer medicines and therapies at this stage so the numbers coming in quarterly group revenue in at 15.3 billion which is i think a beat on the expectations of 14.8 billion francs uh so a quick summation, really, of the impact on the um, adjustment on the kit sales.
2: I think what jumps out is just how lumpy the d- business numbers are because of the diagnostics division, and that is clearly just a hangover from the, the COVID days. But, you know, we were hearing from Novartis yesterday how they intend to really beef up uh, the cancer portfolio, breast cancer specifically, and they're talking about uh, coming up with a more powerful drug that you use early on in the process so you avoid second uh, types of ca- cancer occurrence. And I think what you've got a real challenging environment now around cancer. There is a, a huge uh, refocusing now, and this is a core business for some of the big pharmaceutical groups. They see the, the benefits here. And if you think about where healthcare budgets have been pivoting, it's towards uh, a number of the, the big issues in society around heart disease and around cancer and I think that is the post-COVID world so Roche clearly is going to have some competition on his hands. I might
1: probably slightly but I, I agree that COVID was the clear and present danger of course in 2020 but I think it was and it's a, it's a thematic I picked up actually throughout COVID with um dare Severin and, and others as well mm. is that they always were focused on cancer and heart disease as well, because these were always the, the greater pandemics. And in fact, I remember very early on in COVID, you and I having debate about this as well. And they were always, they've always been the biggest killers. The Dare the, 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 I say it, the, the Western diseases or Western-based diseases, many of these well, of course, there's some hereditary, horrible hereditary conditions as well that create these as well. But cancers, heart disease, diabetes, these are always the big diseases which have for all kinds of horrible reasons, have the most growth potential for these companies as well. So uh, just having a little, very, very quick look at analysis of uh, Novartis, Roche, and Pfizer. And one thing that's actually quite extraordinary, and you don't see this very often, that there's European players who are actually outperforming in terms of valuation their big US peers. You very rarely see that because of all kinds of reasons about the the depth of investors and what have you, and the, 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 um, the attraction of trading in the United States as well. Pfizer trades on 11.6 times forward. And we, we had a quick look yesterday, you and I as well. Um, Novartis trades at 15 to 0.5 times forward. But Roche sits towards the Novartis end of that at 14.2 as well. So I, I think what we were seeing with Vaz Narasim and yesterday is they have, as you quite rightly say, very, very strong cancer uh, franchises as well. And hopefully we'll see some great strides there. Roche is in a similar vein. I wonder
0: though um, whether what we've seen in the recoveries of these share prices are less about the companies and perhaps more about a defensive barbell yeah. positioning with regard to an upcoming recession. Because we know healthcare has a resilience that you don't find in a lot of other sectors, bar perhaps telecoms and some of the utilities. So uh, it's very interesting that they all seem to have pivoted uh, back in March and that the year-to-date performance has been flattered by the more recent performance, as I wonder a lot of strategists have increased their weighting to health care because they're just looking for a port in a storm at the moment.
1: Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I think that's yeah. fascinating because they are, valuation-wise, cheaper than the broader markets. I mean, yeah. you, know, you pick up a top-name pharmaceutical for 11 to 14 times forward. That is a big discount to, for instance, the S&P trading at 18 to 20 times as well. Mm-hmm. And yet, year-to-date, their performances haven't actually – I mean, th- that chart shows – uh, there. Very mixed performance year to date with only one of those three names actually above the flatline.
0: Yeah um, I mean remember we've been talking it was a shame I wasn't here yesterday to have that conversation well, you with were here the in artists spirit. but um, <laughs> because when I was out there last in in their operations it was very clear that they were having significant challenges with the the, 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 the sort of restructuring program that was ongoing to push forward the the growth-driving stocks, in essence, but yeah. Yeah, very, you, you, very interesting place. Yeah,
2: I just wanted to say, I, I think you're right when it comes to positioning. I mean, it's been a stunning jump that you've seen in the healthcare sector in terms of reallocation on the back of uh, the banking story. I mean, banking was effectively number right. one area to allocate to, and but, then you've seen the change. Uh, if you just chart the healthcare year-to-date... Well, year-to-date, look at those
1: three names. Only one of them is above the flat line.
2: But as an overall sector, we are trading at the highest point now that we've seen so far year-to-date on the overall sector. So... Uh. It's not as evident on that as it is on my chart that I've got in front of me. No, I I think
0: it's a a more recent story, isn't it? I mean, that spike off the end of the chart only really started around, as you point out, the beginning of the banking problems. And then it felt like there were a whole lot of asset allocation committees sitting around going, oh, boy, um, we don't want to be in banks. Where do we park this? And then,
1: oh... Hey, healthcare—that used to be a good so place to go defensive. So we're back to relative valuation. You can lose money in there all of go. them, but less so in pharmaceuticals. Something like that. On another note, when's the last time you took a COVID test? Um, my nose uh, has only just recovered from. Right. Do you remember we were jabbing them up there every yes. day at one point, weren't yes. we? I mean, oh. Seriously, did you not find, I mean, it's anecdotal, but every single one of our viewers has had the same experience. Yes. I, I did one a couple of weeks ago. Uh. I felt a bit groggy, but it wasn't negative, obviously. Right. It was negative. But it's just like, my nose has literally only just recovered from two years well, of jabbing those it's things better up. than the PC
2: artists, which obviously went uh, almost towards the brain. Wow. Oh, my God.
1: Well, we had, we, all I can say is that CNBC did a great job of keeping us healthy, but my goodness me, they had some robust nurses. There was one lady who yeah. literally just bashed my head against the wall, so she could just ram it up there. I mean, just, it was... Right. Well,
2: we miss all that commentary, don't we? Yeah. You know how was that one? Oh, that was the worst shit.
0: <laughs> yeah, you don't know how much that cost the team to get that to happen. We, well, we had a whip round.
1: Well, as I say, the company kept <laughs> a us healthy, which is
0: good news. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. There's another right. anecdote about uh, that. Made, made me chuckle because it reminded me of for the COVID test that we took for Davos, and uh, that that one was quite amusing, wasn't
1: it? What you mean the one I got it wrong? <laughs> what? It was a different kind of COVID test. Well, you had to use, uh, it was more like you an oral swab, wasn't it? it. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. had to swill and well, spit. I didn't realise, no. did I? You mean I swallowed the whole <laughs> solution? <laughs> I did, I did. I didn't have a clue. Because we, they didn't
0: specify they did clearly, did they? I mean,
1: the nurses there—they're
0: a good old uh, I, in, so I just did. wonder
2: what you wanted to do after you'd swallowed the solution. Well, how did you think they were going to test?
0: Wretch, I would imagine. I mean, that stuff was disgusting. Just it was basically just salty you know. water, but it wasn't—it wasn't a great taste. <laughs> uh, we will be uh, speaking to the Roche uh, CEO, Thomas uh, Schinnecker. That'll be eight <laughs> twenty Central <laughs> European Time. That is the first on CNBC conversation.
2: Coming up on the show, carrying legs behind its rivals as the luxury jug reveals its latest sales numbers. We'll dig into the details next. Oh, the
1: podcast. Oh, the podcast. Apparently it's fantastic. Uh, and for more on the decreasing options available for First Republic, check out the Squawk Box podcast.
2: Caring sales rose by just 1% in the first quarter with the luxury giant posting revenue of just over 5 billion euros. Sales at the flagship brand Gucci also rose just 1% with new creative director Sabato De Sano set to present his first collection in September. Caring sales in the US fell by 18%. As Charlotte joins us with more. Charlotte, people haven't simply just stopped buying handbags. So this suggests, and uh, when you look at the numbers, that there's something wrong with Gucci.
4: Well, yes, that's right. Yesterday, we were just talking about how LVMH, the competitor, had reached the $500 billion mark, the first European company to do so, because of the extraordinary run that luxury stocks have had uh, over the past few years, where well, this is the outlier caring very much. And you you hit it right on the head. It is because of Gucci. Gucci had an extraordinary run as a brand uh, previously, and basically coming out of fashion slightly. Um, but in a way, the good news that there was no further bad news at Gucci, because sales were up compared to sales being down 7% in Q4. Here they were up 1%. So some analysts saying that maybe we're having the first signs of normalization at Gucci. And to a certain extent, as you said, the new creative director, Sabato Le Sarno, that is about to join the company just next month, presenting the new company in September after Alessandro Michele, the previous um, creative director, is leaving the company. So analysts see that Kering is serious about the change at Gucci, about the change of strategy because of bringing a new creative director. So they, they're aware there is a transition period so maybe they give them the benefit of the doubt, at least for 23, when they see things changing, they know they have an in-depth change of strategy for this brand. Looking at the other brands, Yves Saint Laurent is one that they invested in a lot because getting very aware that they were over-reliant to a certain extent on Gucci. And there is bearing fruit. The, the sales were up 8% at Yves Saint Laurent. So uh, looking at the region, one thing that was interesting though, is the U.S. market. There we saw that sales were down 18% uh, in that region. When you compare again to competitors, they saw things slowing down slightly. VMH said they did see a slight slowdown in the U.S., but certainly not to the extent that we see uh, with with Kering and we you know that Balenciaga had certain issues with uh, some campaigns in the U.S. in particular. So um, some resilience, the reopening of China, they're benefiting from this that uh, we've seen from other luxury groups. But certainly, it's all about Gucci, and they're very aware of the issues, so this year is kind of a transition. It, um,
1: just just a quick one. I was I had lunch with a, a friend the other day, and he said you can't. And he said you used to be able to pick up a supercar for hundred thousand pounds. He said now you can't t- find a supercar for less than two fifty three. And he's, you know, I've known a thing or two about these cars, and and so, the, the the price of these things have gone through the roof, and and it's remained immune to what's going on in the underlying economy. Is Gucci's problem it, that it's just not expensive enough? I, it's oh, not it's LVMH and it's not Hermes, because oh, it is expensive. But when enough. you're at the top top, you are um, you become immune. But when you're middle for diddle or or higher middle, then actually you're not quite as as exclusive enough as maybe a Hermes or I an LV. It's right up
2: there. I mean, you think about a dress uh, over two thousand pounds for a Gucci dress these days, right. for a skirt close to 1000 uh, thousand. The handbags, obviously, uh, there are some in the low end range, but mostly what over but, two thousand. I mean, I'm no expert well.
1: on this, but I do know enough to know that if I was going to go top end, I would probably go along the lines of Hermes, Louis, Louis, Louis Vuitton, rather than Gucci.
4: Yeah, and that's part of the strategy that they announced like last spring. They want to make it even more premium yeah. to play in that league with those guys. In a way, when you you need to keep that element of exclusivity. And Gucci have been a little bit a victim of their success over the past few years. It was literally everywhere. They did dictate the aesthetics for many other brands for a few years, but it's kind of run out of steam. And that's why they're bringing in new blood, a new creative director. They need to change that. So while they're going to carry on working on their uh, legacy kind of brand, the bags, et cetera, et cetera um, they kind of try to change direction. and. B- become even more premium to a certain extent.
0: Thank you
1: for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
2: Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.